Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report Podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder. Today, I'm joined by Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today? You know, Ethan, I'm doing well, but probably not as well as you because you are quite a special individual. I am as special as you make me. I am the cameraman or camera guy, I guess. But I'm also joined by Noah Furtado. Noah, how are you doing today? I'm okay, man. Just a tiny bit exhausted, but we're chugging along. It's not peak Noah Furtado hour, but we're still going to get some great content from Noah. Also joined by Cole Bradley. Cole, how are you doing today? Good, Ethan. I hope you're doing well, too. I am doing well. I was waiting for that. That makes me feel a lot better, Cole. Thank you so much. Uh, But let's move on to some football. ASU over the weekend won 42-34 on the road against Colorado. ASU is now 3-5 and on the season and and 2-3 in Pac-12 play. There's some kind of big things that happened before the game that ended up causing kind of the results that happened. Sean Guano called offensive plays throughout the game for the first time. In his first collegiate start, Trenton Borgay threw for 435 passing yards, which was the most since Mike Bercovici in the Jail Mary game against USC in 2014 when he had 510 passing yards. Jalen Conyers also became the first ASU tight end to score three touchdowns in a game and was a yard away from a fourth touchdown. And on the other side of the ball, after a good defensive performance against Stanford, ASU gave up 359 total yards, 222 passing, and 100. 37 rushing and this is against a Colorado team that was averaging 13.7 points per game heading into the game came out of the game with 34 points which is the most they've scored since they beat Oregon State in double overtime last November so a lot of stuff was happening during this game Noah we'll go to you first for your initial takeaways well offensively the way they started um was as expected in terms of what we heard from the players. Um, with Sean Guano at, as the new play caller, things are going to be sped up. Um, there'd be a lot more tempo involved. And it looked like with Trent Morgay getting his first start, um, he was allowed to really get into some rhythm. Uh, quick passes, short passes. Uh, the ground game was also being established early on, I thought, um, even though I thought it sort of sputtered as the game went on because of some issues up front. Um, but really, he, he was able to establish some confidence again, um, showed that, you know, outside of, you know, a couple of miscues here and there, um, was really, really good uh, at the quarterback position. And obviously that has earned him the right to continue as ASU's quarterback. So that, that was the biggest news, as it seemed, to really validate uh, Borgay in that particular role. Um, on the defensive side of the ball, it wasn't as great. Um, you know, I thought the defense had sort of a weird performance because by the numbers, like they were good overall because they were able to hold JT Shrout like extremely low completion rate. Uh, he was 13 for 34, but he also had two touchdown passes. Um, they also had another score on the ground. And essentially there was a lot of moments that, they had lapses um, and that allowed sort of Colorado to overcome, um, I guess, you know, just it's its own inferiority in terms of really being able to consistently put together positive plays. And uh, that set them up for some of those scores that I mentioned. Um, and then on the ground, especially, I, I thought Colorado's rushing attacks probably looked a little bit better than it should have um, entering that game. One of the worst, if not the worst, um, it is the worst in the Pac-12, actually. 
And uh, it, it didn't necessarily look that way at times. They were able to break off some big ones. Um, and that defensive line still looked like it was struggling to, to really find its way, um, you know, to, to really bolster ASU's run defense. So those were some of my bigger takeaways from Saturday. Cole, you were in Boulder. So what were your initial takeaways after seeing it from the press box? Yeah, I mean, starting with sort of what Noah covered in terms of the offensive performance, I thought it was a stark difference in just how things went in terms of tempo uh, with the guano calling plays and just the um, the involvement of the tight ends was something that really stuck out. I think we can get into that a little bit more later, but, you know, it was kind of embodied in uh, Conyers' performance uh, after he wasn't really involved at all throughout this year. Uh, or sparingly, I should say. So that was a big deal. And I, it's, it's very clear that uh, Borgay is, is the right man to lead um, Aguano's offense, so to speak. Uh, he, I mean, he was masterful. He completed his first nine passes um, before throwing his first incompletion at the start of the second quarter. Uh, it was a really good start. Uh, they got really everything they needed out of the ground game. Uh, I, Yeah, there were some lapses here and there, but I think it was really, um, you know, Aguano just prioritizing uh, the passing game and trying to, you know, really perform in that area instead of on the ground. So I think they got, you know, really all they needed out of Valaday and then sort of let Borgay and, uh, you know, Elijah Badger and those playmakers uh, sort of take care of the rest. So obviously a great offensive performance. Uh, on the defensive side, I mean, they had some timely stops. Uh, they started the second half really well, um, forced two, three and outs. But then Colorado got going on a couple drives. They got a field goal. They ended up scoring um, again in the fourth quarter. Uh, Chris Edmonds's interception at the end of the third quarter, I think it was, was actually uh, a pretty big play um, in the grand scheme of things. Colorado was driving at that point. Um had a new set of downs, probably was, uh, you know, in line to at least come away with a field goal on that drive. So that, uh, you know, shut the Buffaloes down. But outside of that, you, you know, I think they kind of went back to um, their old ways a little bit after a really good performance against Stanford. Um, you know, I don't think we saw as much pressure. Um, it, it, it just, you know, there were some blown coverages and, and stuff like that. So it, it reminded me more of the Washington win. Um, just, you know, they had, they had the, a couple big timely plays, but outside of that, you know, you look at the statistics, it's not really validated through there. So, um, those are some of my biggest takeaways. Chris, what about you? What were your takeaways? But ASU's operation was better than I probably would have expected for transitioning what they were doing, uh, no, no huddles, playing more up tempo. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same offense in a lot of ways, but the way what they were doing with it was quite a bit different in this game. And I thought there would be more, especially on the road, more procedural problems, more hiccups um, than there were coming out of the gate, uh, throwing the ball, like slinging it all over the field. I think they only ran the ball on first down twice in the first half, um, which is very different than what we saw from a Glenn Thomas led offense or directed offense. And that's especially a little bit surprising because Colorado was maybe the worst team in power five football with its run defense this year. So it 
the, the, the game clearly set up as one in which you thought ASU would be able to just come in, run the ball extensively. Uh, there was, you know, talk on our podcast about, you know, putting up huge numbers on the ground, 250, 300 yards, whatever. That didn't materialize. Um, part of it, of course, was because ASU didn't even really try to do that that much. But I will say ASU ran the ball less effectively than it should have for um, the the caliber of opponent, only averaging 3.7 yards uh, per carry overall in the game. When we saw that um, uh, Daniel and Gata had five rushing attempts and for no yards. And Valade averaged, what, 5.1 yards per carry, which is um, not good. Definitely not good against Colorado. I thought, uh, so I think there was a, a, a rhythm issue, maybe, perhaps. That was part of it. ASU's offensive line also has missed with Darius Henderson. That has been a factor, and that will could continue to be a factor, uh, depending upon his availability for this week. And, um, yeah, all of that didn't really matter because the caliber of the opponent was terrible. And Trenton Bourget came out and had a very good performance. Uh, I think it's important to, to, to say that at least a good chunk, a good portion, it's hard to really put a number on it, a percentage or whatever, but a good amount of his success has to have been the product of playing bad defenses in his two outings, right? It's, I think if we had seen, for example, Trenton Bourget play against Oklahoma State, Utah, USC. And then we had seen Emory Jones play against Washington for most of the game and Colorado for most of the game. And especially maybe after uh, changing play calling to Guano. I think that, you know, we might be think, talking about the quarterback a little bit differently. So it isn't to say that I don't think that Borgay is the best option because I do. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think he gets the ball out of his hand really quickly and thinks the game at a high level. And he tends to identify what's going on on the field in a hurry and have a, a um, disposition and a style that is a good fit for the, the, the players that ASU has and what ASU should probably be doing. Um, so it's not taking anything away from him, but the uh, the defense. This was not a good performance because the uh, can't give up explosive plays against the bad offense. That's um, only average, as Ethan said, thirteen point seven or whatever yards. I mean, points per game. Um, there there were also uh, too many third down conversions allowed, and ASU's continues to be unsuccessful in the red zone. These areas are, you know, really problematic for this defense. It ranks among the worst five or so power five teams in the country on third down defense, red zone defense. Um, and Donnie Henderson said straight up uh, earlier in the year, those are the most important categories. So ASU is doing poorly in the most important categories, even against offenses that aren't good. Um, and, and so you can't give this ASU had a good, did a good job against Stanford on defense. And so you're thinking, okay, maybe they, they're, they're, they're getting a good opponent in Colorado. It's an opportunity to sort of build off of that. 
sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. That's sort of what happened in the game uh, on that side of the ball. It just didn't ultimately matter because ASU's passing attack was so successful. All right, so those are some initial takeaways. Let's get a little bit more specific on on what happened in the game and what it might mean heading into the future. As you talked about, Chris, uh, these two games maybe isn't what you can completely go after in terms of what's going to happen for the rest of the season. But Aguano took over play calling, so we'll talk a little bit about that as well as kind of what differences that makes and what it means for the team on offense then as well. Just thoughts on Borgay's performance. So just kind of offensively, both Iguano's play calling and Borgay's performance. Cole, we'll go to you first for this one. Yeah, I mean, again, Chris talked about it operationally. ASU was really good. And I think the biggest thing that stood out to me, uh, aside from pretty much every other week is, and I mentioned it a little bit before, but the involvement of the tight ends was way more than I think we've seen in any game this season. Um, we talked about Conyers' performance. He had six catches, 108 yards, but Messiah Swinson also got involved, had three catches for 55 yards. Um, you know, so it was a good game for him as well. And I think they uh, utilized um, those players um, more than they were used previously this season. And so I think that definitely helped, um, especially with like, you know, Colorado secondary having um, they talked about the mismatches. There was a lot of smaller defensive backs that I think uh, Guana recognized that, you know, they could put a Jalen Conyers or a Messiah Swinson up against those guys and, you know, have them go make plays. I think that was evident in Conyers' third touchdown where he basically mossed that um, defensive back. Um, but outside of that, it, it just functioned really well. It was very fluid. It, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of, um, stops. I, I remember, remember hearing something about that. There was, you know, less than 10 seconds between plays at one point. I think that kind of quickness, um, might be exactly what ASU needs, um, going forward the rest of the way, not only to sort of throw defenses for a loop, but also to stay in a rhythm themselves. Um, because I think part of their downfall previously has just been, you know, kind of lethargically, you know, getting in the huddle, calling a play, coming up to the line, and then, you know, it not working out. You're giving uh, the defense time to catch their breath and things like that. So I think tempo just clearly was – was it was very beneficial for ASU in this game, and um, we've seen how other offenses have used it to their advantage against ASU's defense um, this year and how that's worked out. So I think if ASU continues to hone in on that, that's, you know – they'll be really successful or it'll at least be a step in the right direction. Noah, what about you? What were your thoughts on Iguano's play calling some of the differences it may have created in Borgay's performance? It just felt like or looked like Iguano was trying to get Borgay very simple assignments to get the ball to their playmakers out in space. Uh, don't get me wrong. They did rattle off some big plays, uh, but very often it was the case where he'd have uh, a quick route, a quick read, and he'd get the ball out of his hands. Um, a lot of the times that was Elijah Badger as he sort of continued to, to be a reliable weapon uh, in the passing game, uh, as well as, as Cole mentioned, the, the tight ends. I mean, the, one of the touchdown passes for Conyers, the play was like, it was like a screen for him on an out route. They used Andre Johnson on that side of the field to block for him. 
and he just sort of piled into the end zone. I, that's like something probably couldn't have even fathomed with this offense um, early on, just given sort of the inactivity of the tight ends. Um, like they called a play specifically to get Conyers uh, an opportunity to score. And that's just, it's, it's a complete 180 from what we've seen in terms of their involvement, uh, the tight ends that is. And so I just felt like Aguano, he sort of recognized um, where Borgain needed to get the ball. And, you know, a lot of easy completions, as I mentioned, that allowed him to get into rhythm, you know, gather some momentum and uh, just really continuing to build off that, not trying to take too much. Uh, and then when the defense is sort of, you know, giving those bigger plays, he, they, they were able to take that as well. Um, as far as Badger was concerned, a lot of his like longer completions actually were just catching the ball in space and going for yards after the catch. And so that was just that all played into you know, what Aguano seemingly was trying to emphasize um, throughout the week. And then it sort of came out uh, on game day. Chris, what can you add surrounding these topics? Well, I think people listening to the podcast uh, regularly know that I've been saying that ASU needed to get more completions that were under 10 yards and especially on first and second down, second, first down, uh, ASU had an eight-yard reception on its first play in a drive that led to a touchdown. Second drive, ASU had a, a completion on for seven yards on its first play on a drive that led to a touchdown. ASU was not in third and medium or third and long in either of those uh, possessions. That's 14 points right out of the gate. The the understanding that, that exists somewhere between Iguano and Borgay uh, of – uh, the importance of taking positive yards uh, on early downs, continuing to get into a chain moving uh, perspective, playing with some some pace. I think that it, it's one of the biggest things that's been missing from from this offense. And um, I, the the way that ASU approached this season, I'm confident with Herm Edwards at the outset with Glenn Thomas was uh, okay. Uh, we're not going to be that potent on offense. We are, are we've lost a lot in, in, in the, the passing game. Uh, receivers transferring, Jane Daniels transferring. Um, our defense is, you know, it's it's um, front seven, okay, pretty good. Secondary got some questions. Let's play more ball control. Let's have fewer series, fewer possessions. That that there's a conservative sort of. Uh, you know, essence to Herm Edwards that he said um, multiple times throughout his, his tenure at ASU, the ASU needed to try to score 30 plus points a game. But then you saw stylistically, they never would play in a way that led to that. And this season, they'd been playing this extremely slow 60, 65 plays per game. And uh, you're not getting 30 points or anything close to that on average when that's the case. Now um, they had, you know, 76, I think, plays in this game, trending toward 80 when you, you know, factor in the plays that were had penalties. They had four penalties on offense. They had one dumb one, Ben Scott going in late on a hit. They had two holdings, one false start. Um, that's not bad overall, given their the situation of kind of all the things that they were trying to do to get everybody on the same page. I think very clearly 
I've been saying, got to get the ball in Elijah Badger's hands more often uh, and do it as, you know, early. Uh, don't, don't have, don't, you know, don't need it to only be when he's got to save you on third and long or whatever. Um, in this game, they did that also from the outset. He had another big performance, his best of, the, of his career, uh, season highs and catches, yardage. And then I, I think when you see there's some, I asked Trenton Bourget after the game about what the tight ends development. And remember, Messiah Swinson had uh, some, some big catches in this game as well. He had a rambling one over the middle early that went for a big gain. Then he had the third down conversion that, or the second down that, that was a first down conversion on the fourth quarter that basically allowed ASU to salt the game away. So it wasn't just Conyers, even though Conyers was excellent and obviously one of the most, you know, uh, signature sort of um, uh, player in the game along with Borgay. But I just think that um, Borgay, he sees and he thinks the game differently than a lot of quarterbacks have at ASU and elsewhere. He was talking really about, uh, okay, Colorado in this game, they were trying to bring their second safety into the box a lot to key in on the run game because they figured – like we all figured ASU's just going to try to run the ball, right? Just nonstop. Okay. Well, by bringing that extra safety down now, Colorado's in single high safety situations. Well, Jalen Conyers has the ability to run the seam. He's going to access an area of the field that is going to be a vulnerable place in, in this, in this defensive approach that they had. Right. And then on top of that, he got, he said, Borgay after the game, and then if teams want to move up and press Elijah Badger at the line of scrimmage when you're in a single high, well, that means basically that that safety isn't going to be able to get over to that spot a lot of times, right, on a, on a go ball, right, on a, on a, uh, a deep shot. So Borgay is understanding pre-snap and from series to series what this defense is trying to do to us what that unlocks in terms of our ability from a passing game standpoint. And that, that can be made a little bit more difficult by defenses that are more sophisticated and better at disguising what they're trying to do uh, pre-snap and then rolling into some different coverages. And he didn't have a perfect game by any stretch. The interception was bad. He had a telegraph on third and four on a little out to, to Conyers. I think that he tried to take a, a deep ball shot on another third manageable when he had an ability to get a conversion underneath that would have moved the chains. Um, he, what I also like, kind of like about him is today he talks to, to the media and he says, man, I, there were some, you know, plays I wish I had back. There were some opportunities that I hadn't read the wrong coverage or I, I went through my progressions incorrectly or whatever the case may be. Right. I think that, somebody who has that ability to self-assess critically and not say, not, you know, be so focused on the positive or what you do that was so good, but to look at it and be like, Oh, and like all I, and I could have done better with all in all these different ways with the way that he thinks about the game and with the guano, with the, what a guano is trying to do that those things bode well uh, for the future. Um, you know, whether or not a guano ends up being the, the coach or not, or stays with at ASU and a, coordinator capacity or some other capacity. I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I feel like at a minimum we've seen that Trent Borgay is, is very capable of being at least a pretty good PAC 12 quarterback. 
and he's a sophomore in terms of his eligibility, right? So that matters. And also totally not related to this game, but if I'm a if I'm a head coach who's out there who's thinking about the ASU job, well, I might be kind of interested that Trent Borgay looks like this right now. That might that might sort of pique my curiosity, right? Um, you know, especially because Elijah Badger's young, right? A lot of people are saying, oh, Elijah Badger's, you know, now he's gonna be a transfer portal candidate and get a lot of money thrown to him and NIL and all this stuff. Okay, that maybe that's true. But Jalen Conyers and Elijah Badger and Daniel Ngata, they're young, right? And so when you have Borgay and then you have an offensive line that has most of the, most of the players are going to be returning next year, potentially, or they could, all of that sort of creates a, what I think is uh, a situation that potential head coaches could be intrigued by, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, and I mean, you guys talked about Borgay, we talked about Iguano, talked a little bit about tight end usage. There's been two guys that have had continued success, and Elijah Badger and Xavier Valade. You just talked about both of them a little bit there, Chris. But they both continue to be successful so far this season and have been a big part of the offense's success when it's been successful. So, Noah, what are your thoughts on, on both of their kind of performances throughout the season and what that indicates leading into the last month of the season? Yeah, I'll start with Valaday. Um, I thought that his final numbers were not um, were a little misleading as to the kind of um, forward push the ASU offensive line was getting. Um, you know, the extent to which they were able to prevent uh, penetration into the backfield, I thought was not great at times. Um, one of his touchdowns, which was sort of an anomaly. Uh, of the evening was the one where he essentially ran into the end zone untouched through a massive hole. Um, but as I sort of alluded to earlier, that that offensive line performance was was really inconsistent. Um, but Valade, I think the point really is that Valade remained uh, effective, obviously. 118 rushing yards, three touchdowns. Um, 5.1 yards per carry is, is Considering sort of the context that I added to the conversation there, it, it's it's still um, like he did what uh, he could with um, some of the opportunities that he got on the ground. So I, I felt like, you know, I feel like at this point, Valade is really just um, he's ex- obviously extremely reliable, um, even behind an offensive line that's that's really been up and down this year with uh, Badger in the passing game. Uh, what sort of allows him to really thrive is obviously, you know, he's a deep threat, but not like really restricted to that identity. He's, he's obviously able to get out in space, uh, catch balls underneath and go and make plays. Um, and that helps, you know, a quarterback um, in a pocket that's not necessarily as steady, you know, from game to game, whether it was Emery um, or Trenton back there, you know, the offensive line had had some good games and then had some some real bad lapses, uh, I thought, um, from week to week. So when you have a guy like Badger, where you can use him in a lot of different ways, um, and, and I say can because there's just so many different things you can do with him, though at times he he's, hasn't been used perhaps, um, you know, as creatively as, as maybe Iguano has liked, and that's sort of what they're pushing for now. Uh, based off of this this recent performance, um, I just feel like 
he's able to take some of that pressure off uh, of a quarterback that might be in, you know, under pressure a little bit more otherwise uh, if he didn't have those that option to go to a receiver that's able to pick up some big gains even while catching a five-yard pass or a six-yard pass or coming around on a jet sweep, which, you know, we we haven't seen uh, probably enough of, right? Like um, just the fact that he was able to, I, I forget how many scores it was, but limited touches last year, he was uh, extremely effective when he did get those opportunities on jet sweeps. So just really versatile, uh, extremely talented, and just getting him more and more involved in different ways uh, will just allow uh, someone like Borgay um, to really get comfortable in a pocket that that might not always be um, as safe as it seems with, with the offensive line that ASU's had this year. Cole, what are your thoughts on these two players so far this season and heading into the rest of the season? Yeah, I, I mean, no, no went uh, into extensive depth on it, but I mean, but they're, I think in, in my mind, they're easily two of the top playmakers on this offense, and um, they've both been integral to uh, the success um, that ASU has had this year. I think starting with Valaday, yeah, this past game, wasn't wasn't his best by any means but again he gave ASU really you know everything that they needed uh, before they turned away uh, from him and exercised the passing game a little bit more he's obviously been one of the top rushers in the Pac-12 as a result um, and given his career background at um, Wyoming clearly you know we I think all of us expected that he was going to be one of the top contributors um, for this offense this season, and he has been. So um, he's definitely been, you know, a, as Noah said, a reliable force for them. But on top of that, Badger has just been – Badger's kind of come out of um, his shell a little bit, I'd, I'd say. I think there was a lot of preseason expectations with, you know, taking that step up, being that number one target or being one of those top targets – and he's really molded into that role really well. And, you know, he's also one of the better receiving options in the Pac-12 as a result. So and he's seemingly gotten better, it seems like, every week. He had a couple really um, impressive plays against Colorado. It was the uh, – I forget how many tackles he broke on the one reception at the end of the first or first quarter, I think it was. Um, that was an extremely impressive play. And, you know, it set ASU up with a good field position as well. Like those things are obviously big in terms of like sort of little things that you take away from these guys impact. But yeah, I mean, as sort of Noah, as Noah sort of indicated, both of these guys are extremely reliable and they've been, um, you know, integral to ASU's offense this year. What are your thoughts, Chris? Well, Xavier Valaday is leading the Pac-12 in rushing attempts per game uh, with 137, and he's tied for second in yards per game, rushing yards per game with 97. He has 760 uh, rushing yards, which puts him on pace for well over 1,000 uh, this season, right? Like he's tracking towards 1,100, 1,200 rushing yards. Um and when you know that he's such going to be such a focal point of what ASU is doing offensively, because 
they've been running the ball so much, uh, or at least they were um, up until Luano taking over the play calling. I think it's just super impressive what he's been able to accomplish. He's also up to 10 touchdowns, which is um, tied for second, I believe, um, in the Pac-12. And to hit 4,000 career rushing yards, and then to really talk after the game about more the the offensive success overall and genuinely smiling and being thrilled with uh, what Jalen Conyers did and what other people have done. I think he's a very uh, team-oriented player. They, uh, my sense is they probably they probably underutilized him in the passing game in the first five or six games of the season, or four or five games maybe. And um, it's going to actually probably make him a uh, more of a threat to get some bigger runs. He, he doesn't have great top end speed, but um, when all of a sudden now ASU starting to do all of this stuff to broaden out its its passing attack, um, it, I think that that's that creates other opportunities now. So teams are going to have to make decisions how they're going to defend ASU, and it's not going to be as easy as it used to be, which is important. And that also then benefits Elijah Badger, who is, I think at this point, um, like fourth or fifth in the, the Pac-12. In, I think he's fifth in, um, in receptions, and he is fourth in uh, – or at least or fifth, I should say, also in uh, receiving yards per game. And none of us expected that he'd be anywhere near 45 catches at this point in the season. I frankly thought that he might not get there for the entire season. I was very clear about that. The, the level of improvement that we've seen from him from last year when, as Noah said, that he wasn't even playing that much because there wasn't a lot of trust. Um, in his understanding of the offense, but then when they got him in on special uh, plays, he had the, I think two end around touchdowns um, and just was a, a dynamo. But, but what has happened this year, I think is really sort of a, um, it's doesn't really reflect all that well on Zach Hill to, to see what Badger has done this year in the first year of a new offense versus what he did last year in the second year of Zach Hill's offense. And he didn't play the year. He didn't play uh, in uh, 2020 because of uh, academic issues. He was on the team practicing and all of that learning the offense. So he probably should have been further along, probably should have been utilized more. I think earlier this year, based on what we're seeing now, probably should have got the ball more to him in some screens, breaking all those tackles, quick game opportunities, extremely elusive. Uh, I compared him to Brandon Ayuk when he arrived at ASU as a, as a prospect and Brandon Ayuk led the country in yards after the catch in his last year at ASU, which is an indication of got to get the ball in the guy's hands because he's very slippery and he's going to make guys miss. Um, now that you have Jalen Conyers and Masai Swinson doing what I think a lot of people expected uh, from a just, getting more targets to the tight end position earlier in the season, maybe not obviously three touchdowns, but just throwing the ball more to Messiah Swinson and or Jalen Conyers. It, 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 it gives them, uh, gives them, even though they have the same weapons, it makes it feel like they have a lot more potency 
in what they're able to do. And uh, so I just think that you need to just pour gasoline on that fire and get the ball to Elijah Badger even more um, and uh, try to make teams struggle to figure out how they're going to defend you in the same way that teams struggle to figure out how they're going to defend UCLA, which is ASU's opponent this week. We're going to talk a lot more about them on Thursday. Donnie Henderson and others had phenomenal perspective on what Chip Kelly's offense does that makes it difficult for opponents from a preparation and execution standpoint. Those things were just missing from ASU earlier in the season. And we could talk ad nauseum about that. I think they were not using every I think every Jones was misused um, and also done no favors by the style. So, and Trent Borgay, he has been, it's been fortuitous for him, which he probably deserved. Guy had an injury last year. You know, he didn't get maybe some of the opportunities that he would have had, if not for being hurt and then having surgery and all these things. So things have worked out well for him. Um, but I, I just uh, – there's a lot of factors that are, that are going into it beyond just quarterback play. And um, uh, good news for ASU is that their offense is without question right now in the best shape that it's been in all season going into the final month of the year. Yeah, and I think kind of an interesting point to add on to that Elijah Badger conversation is as soon as he started getting – a lot more yards and catches and games. They talked about him getting doubled and tripled and, and what they were going to do to try and kind of combat that. And now that the tight ends are more involved, as you said, that's going to be something that they'll definitely try to use in terms of combating that double and triple team. But I also forget who said at the beginning of the season, but I think someone said something about an Elijah Badger takeover. So it seems like that may be happening right now. So it's good good for the ASU offense and for Iguano and Borgay. You're such a good man, camera guy. Thanks, man. It means a lot coming from you, boss man. But anyways, defensive performance was not as good as the offensive performance that we just talked about. As as we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast and what Chris just talked about, 13.7 points per game coming into the game for Colorado and 34 points coming out of it. So a very sketchy defensive performance, but there were some big plays here and there that kept the game where it was and able to give ASU a win. Cole, what did you see from the defense? Yeah, first off, the Edmonds interception, as I mentioned before, was definitely the highlighting play on that side of the ball. But as a whole, again, I think it was just a regression from last game. Um, ASU giving up 359 total yards to a Colorado team that had that hasn't even averaged over 300, if I'm not mistaken, this year is something that you can't really walk away with and consider that sort of a moral win. Um, and on top of that, allowing, you know, 222 yards through the air, um, you know, even though JT Shroud did not have the most um, shining completion percentage, uh, to say the least. But the fact that they still gave up that many yards through the air, I think is pretty telling as well. There were some busted coverages over the top. Um, Colorado had a couple, you know, pretty athletic, has a couple of pretty athletic wide receivers, one of them being. Jordan Tyson, who had a really good game in this one, he had a career high in yards, I think by the first half, um, it was over 100. He was also the guy who had the 88-yard punt return touchdown. Obviously, that wasn't on the defense, but still, um, they, you know, ASU struggled with, with you know, containing those guys. And then um, Deion Smith, uh, you know, on the ground had over 100 yards. So, 
I think considering just how weak Colorado's offense has been and then, you know, ASU coming off of what they were able to do against Stanford, I, you know, I think all of us felt like it was going to be a pretty dominant performance for the, for the ASU defense. And it just didn't work out that way. Um, but the big plays were, were, were killer in the end, the 58 yard touchdown pass from Shrout to Tyson actually equaled uh, Colorado's longest play from scrimmage this year. And, you know, those things, you know, kind of happen because of the, you know, busted coverages and stuff like that. And the mishaps to Marcus Davis, I'm pretty sure was on coverage in or in coverage on that play um, sort of aligns with how he sort of played this year. So there was a lot of things I think ASU can probably take away from this and definitely, you know, improve off of, especially, but I think the biggest thing is that, you know, having the timely plays and being able to sort of set the tone in the second half, like they did um, was pretty crucial. And I think ended up giving the offense enough cushion um, in the end to, to really solidify and seal the deal. So that's sort of the biggest takeaways for me. Noah, what additional takeaways do you have about ASU's defense against Colorado? I mean, I'll start with the secondary. There's some positives because for a second consecutive game, I thought you saw some pretty promising results from Ed Woods, um, even Roe Torrance, the two cornerbacks. Uh, that position, you know, because there's injuries here and there uh, early in the season, uh, it wasn't necessarily uh, – I guess, secured by any one player. It feels a lot more that way with uh, Torrance and Woods where they're at right now. Um, to Marcus Davis, when he, was, uh, when he was subbed in, you know, for a few plays uh, on that touchdown drive, uh, and by drive, I mean very long touchdown pass that was wide open down the field. Um, Donnie Henderson, he, he sort of mentioned um, – that decision wasn't to rest Torrance or Woods or any of them. Uh, it was because of some cramping issues. He didn't necessarily specify uh, the player, but had to have been probably from Torrance or Woods for a little bit. Um, for, for Davis, it just, it feels like he, he's not that, he's not even a quality backup at this point with how he's played just not even in this past game uh, alone, just this season. Um, and so, you know, judging from sort of the separation that you're starting to see uh, between Torrance Woods and, and Davis, you, you might want to like try and look at some other guys uh, that have um, some potential to give you perhaps some more depth uh, at that position. Isaiah Johnson, um, he's, had some promising performances, but then some other things have gotten in the way of him really um, taking hold of a starting position. Um, you have other guys just in the secondary in general, Willie Hartz. Uh, on that very same play that I was uh, referencing with Marcus Davis um, when he got essentially burnt uh, on what was like a deep post route, Hartz, you know, maybe he was supposed to be in position on the back end uh, just as the last line of defense. He wasn't. Um, so it, it, it felt like the starters in the secondary for ASU, um, are establishing themselves more and more, uh, Jordan Clark, uh, at the nickel position, primarily at least, uh, 
Corey Bethley, Chris Edmonds, Edmonds with the interception, obviously. I, it's just about, I think, who's next uh, behind those guys in those moments uh, when you do need someone to fill in, maybe to give a guy a rest or anything like that. Because really in this game, it was, as Henderson mentioned this week, because of the big plays, like the explosive plays that uh, were just essentially very quick, like you blinked and, and they were down the field uh, much further or uh, in the end zone. So it just feels like they, they have some depth issues potentially in the secondary. Um, and, and that's sort of the biggest thing that popped out to me outside of, as I mentioned earlier, some of the um, some of the continued struggles uh, in the trenches with, with trying to plug up holes. Um, you know, there was a lot of opportunities for Colorado to, to get some positive yards on runs. I thought, you know, the defensive line improved um, as the game went on, but uh, they're, they're likely not where they even not even close to where they want to be um, in a season when like in a season that has been, you know, marked by their struggles with trying to, to stop opposing running backs. Chris, what are your thoughts on the defensive performance? Well, not good enough, not nearly good enough. Um, the touchdown, the long touchdown pass that was on third and 12 or 13 or whatever. Uh, Donnie Henderson said they were in cover three. I watched that again. That cover three really, Tamarcus Davis had not the middle third of the field, but he continued with the receiver because there was no other threat on that side. But Willie Hartz was really out of totally out of position. Um, he he has deep middle responsibility, and somehow there's a guy running 15, 10, 15 yards behind him over the middle third of the field, and he's not there. Uh, that that should never happen. Uh, and that speaks to what Noah was talking about with their their secondary depth issues. Um, you know, after the Bethley Edmonds and Clark, it's very much a drop off, I would say at this point. And Clark also was responsible. They um, they basically ran what, what looked like a, it was going to be a perimeter screen, and then the receiver just kept going. And Clark tried to grab him. You know, he, he, he didn't do a good job um, on that rep. And then basically that ended up being a long completion. ASU also gave up some other big plays. I remember one run, one run play in which um, they, they, they blitz from the other side and they got gashed in the, in, in the run game. I mentioned earlier, ASU really struggling on third down defense. Um, Colorado 9 of 18 which very bad offense. ASU's tied for 128th in the country out of 131 teams in third down defense. Um, Sean Aguano said that 50% is not good enough. And against Colorado, it's not even remotely close to good enough, especially when some of those are third and long conversions. And then ASU's also 100, 119th in um, red zone defense and giving up too many touchdowns also in the red zone. Um, Florida, Kansas, and Auburn are the only teams that have given up more red zone rushing touchdowns than ASU among Power 5 teams. And then you have ASU uh, also is 120th in the number of first downs allowed. Uh, so this has been a, this has been a objectively bad defense that we've seen 
uh, put onto the field. And I've had a lot of, you know, banter with Donnie Henderson about things um, throughout the season. And he said after his press conference this week, you know, that he's going to get me to say that one of these games that, that they played a good game on defense, I thought they played a good game against Stanford, you know, so it's not like they haven't had a good game, but they haven't played nearly well, nearly enough. I think for their talent, part of it, I think is that they've been too predictable. Um, they've, they've improved that in the last few weeks. Didn't really have as much of an impact in this game as I thought that it might. Um, but they, they, there's just a lot more room that they have to improve. Just something is not allowing them also to generate the sorts of negative plays and turnovers that, that you kind of need to be successful turnover margin. I think people know is one of the most predictive stats in football. ASU is the only FBS team in the country to have not recovered a fumble. So you know, there's probably some luck involved in that, but it's but also there's something to, to be said about the style that you're playing, right? The more pressures, the more times that you're around the quarterback in the pocket, the more that you're run blitzing, the more that you're getting yourself into situations where you have the opportunity to, to get the ball out of guy's hands. And ASU hasn't done it. So um, they, of course, uh, have had some signs of some progress we've talked about the secondary getting their hands on more balls and being better in man coverage of late uh when they've been given the opportunity to play in those coverages i think that's still demonstrated to be the case with ed woods and uh Roe torrance and even jordan clark not perfect by any stretch but not bad and um they need to keep leaning into what what things that they do well and also figure out how they can get to the quarterback more often and in more disguised ways yeah, and let's let's talk a little bit more about the defense because you just talked about kind of what they need to do to be better. But the real question surrounding the defense is inconsistency. And they play against Stanford, and as you just said, they're a team that played very well against Stanford and then go up against Colorado, and the defense looks really shaky. And it seems like they've been inconsistent throughout this season. So, Cole, what do you think ASU's defense needs to do to be more consistent moving forward? I mean, I, I think, you know, a situation that really encapsulates this well is we talked to, you know, plenty of defensive guys or players after the Stanford game and their eyes seemingly lit up and they smiled and they seemed really pleased with how, you know, aggressive and, you know, the, the more man coverage that they played. That was particularly the case with um, some of the defensive backs. But um, I think just going back to that, just – whatever worked that game with the, you know, dialing up the, the blitzes, you know, mixing things up um, in terms of your coverages and your pressures and trying to, trying to be a little bit more aggressive at the point of attack that clearly inspired those guys or, you know, worked really well for them against Stanford. And I'm, I don't really know why they reverted back to what they were doing before against Colorado after it worked so well against Stanford. It, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, but at the same time, I think it's also um, them sort of figuring out, uh, you know, we talked a little, Noah talked a little bit about, you know, the, the secondary depth. I think that's a huge, a huge deal with it as well. Figuring out who, what personnel plays, 
plays best. And I think that's really re- revealing itself, you know, when Ed Woods and Roe Torrance having a couple of really good weeks uh, consecutively. Chris Edmonds obviously has made some really good plays as well. Corey Bethley um, has been very versatile coming into the box and, you know, being sent on some blitzes, um, you know, he's been one of their best tacklers. So I think it's just understanding how to Donnie Henderson, understanding how to use the guys that he has um, well, and, you know, making sure that they um, play with the same sort of aggression and the same sort of, um, you know, spirit that they did against Stanford because I, you know, what, what other time this year did we see them have a kind of performance like that? I mean, never. So I think, I think those are the big things they just need to, you know, go back to is, is everything that really worked well for them that game and translating it, um, you know, the rest of the way. And if you get burned, you get burned. That's part of being aggressive and playing more man coverage and things like that. You have to, you know, you're vulnerable to those things, but I think at this point you should, um, you know, ASU shouldn't be playing scared in that regard. And it seems like a lot of the times they've been playing scared. Yeah. So Noah, what does this ASU defense need to do to find consistency in your opinion? Yeah, I'll move away from the secondary. I think the points have been made there, but up front, um, Aguano and Henderson um, really harped on the need for, as it seemed, improved gap integrity. Um, across the defensive line. Uh, They didn't, obviously, I mean, why would they? They didn't single out any given player or anything like that. Um, That is perhaps um, jeopardizing said integrity. But, um, you know, the the whole idea is like, you want, you know, players want to make plays, um, get sacks, tackles for loss, things of that nature. Um, But, in order to do that the right way is, is really what Aguano and Henderson are saying. Um, they, they have to essentially stick to their assignments, stick to their jobs and let the plays uh, come to them in that respect so that they're not chasing, uh, leaving like a gap, a hole that uh, they were responsible for and sort of allowing um, running backs to find that um, and break off some bigger runs that potentially um, wouldn't have been there. Right. Otherwise. So I, it's very simple. Um, you know, the, the saying of like having each player do, um, his respective job, um, might, you know, throw some fans off like, Oh, it's just coach talk. Um, but in, in this respect, they, they did definitely, um, relay what, uh, I can't say it's their biggest concern, but one of the, one of their concerns moving into, uh, this weekend to try and patch up and, and improve upon, um, you know, we're, we're past midway through the season now, and uh, that run defense has still not found, um, has not made enough strides to, to elevate its effectiveness um, against any team, really, any team's rushing attack. Um, you know, Washington against them, that ground game was, uh, was lethal, and it wasn't even expected to be Colorado. They outran their average and rushing yards per game um, Saturday. So, so there's just things that, you know, as a collective that they're looking to, to shore up. Um, and it's, and it's more of that really than any of the talent up front. Cause um, as we sort of, as our coverage indicated, you know, in the preseason, especially the talent there, um, the promise was, uh, was great across sort of the players they had 
uh, Joe Moore, Chavez Moore, Nessa Jade Silvera, the top transfer, you know, um, Anthony Cooper, BJ Green, all these guys, they, they, they bring something to the table, but together they, it just seems like they haven't been able to click in the way that, uh, you know, Henderson especially has wanted them to all year. Chris, what are your thoughts on what this team needs to do to be consistent and maybe have you tell Donnie Henderson they played some good defense? Well, we need to play some good defense, right? Um, ultimately, the the test is going to get way tougher for them. Like UCLA is a much tougher test than um, what they've had in, in the last couple weeks, a uh, couple games, I should say, right? So um, the the lack of discipline is a little bit troubling, right? It, like there's no reason why you shouldn't understand if it's been sort of programmed into you properly by your former head coach who was a NFL head coach and a defensive player um, in the secondary and by Donnie Henderson, who was a former NFL defensive coordinator and by Marvin Lewis, who was a former NFL head coach and defensive coordinator uh, and by Robert Rodriguez, who's a former NFL position coach um, and by Chris Claiborne, who was a former NFL uh, starting linebacker. Like you just have to do your job. And there's something that's sort of been missing with that, with ASU's defense uh, beyond the schematic issues and the play calling things that I think we've talked about that have probably not enabled ASU to be in the best position uh, to be successful at times. Just uh, there's, too many guys that are making too many mistakes because they're trying to do too many things that they're not supposed to do. And um, that has to change. And I think it has to do with sort of culture and expectations and uh, the way that teaching takes place and the way that going over film takes place and all these sorts of off the field things. Um, but they have made a lot of progress in some ways in, in recent weeks since Iguana took over and they need to have one of their best weeks of progress this week in preparation for UCLA, because that that's an opponent that's capable of hanging a really big number on the scoreboard. Uh, if you don't have a great defensive performance, it's going to take a much better performance by uh, ASU than any that we've seen this year, including Stanford uh, to emerge with a win in that game. Well, ASU come away with a 42-34 to 34 win on the road against Colorado with very good offensive play and some shaky defensive play, but they ended up getting a win at the end of the day with some new guy or with Iguano calling plays on offense and Borgay starting his first game in college. So we'll be moving on from Colorado. If you want any more about this game from Colorado, keep your eye out for 10 takeaways. Uh, that will be on the site soon. UCLA first look will also be up. So as we move forward to UCLA, as Chris talks about, keep your eyes out for that. And as always, we'll have our premium podcast on Thursday, but it will be a little bit different than normal. We will have a basketball preview in addition to the UCLA preview. So make sure to stay tuned for that on Thursday. But for now, that's it for this edition of the Sun Double Source Report podcast. For Chris Cartman, Noah Furtado, and Cole Bradley, I've been Ethan Ryder. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time.